What you have to realize on any journey is it's almost always better to have help rather than do it alone. The journey to better started because I needed to go on a journey. That it, 53 years old, by outside measures was super successful, but internally I was not. And I'm hoping that through this, I can learn to be a better person and hopefully just to make my portion of the world just a little bit better. I want people to know that A, they're not alone, and B, that we all struggle with where we are in life, how we are in life. We can learn lots from each other, ways to make our lives better and make us better people by being curious and interactive with others from a wide array of background and experiences. I'm Bill Lombardi, your host. Welcome to the journey to better. I want to welcome everyone to the journey to better. I'm honored today to have my good friend, Dr. Ajay Kurtney here, who does not represent Columbia, CRF, or anyone else today. He is just representing his own views and thoughts. And we're here to talk about unspoken skills and the role that empathy plays in trying to help us get through our daily lives and improve um, patient care. So with that, Ajay, I always have to, do you want to start a little bit like, where did you, how did you get to where you are? So everybody sort of knows your background. No, totally. Thanks, Bill. And first, I mean, honor to be on the show. Um, it's been, uh, I mean, it's an honor to be your friend, but like to see this aspect of, you know, what you've been doing and inspiring a lot of other people, um, you know, to me, it's just, the, it's just the, the icing on the cake, if you will. So I, I think it's it's been it's been a good journey for me, and I, I'm just glad that I was along for the, for the ride partly with you. So thanks for having me. Um, that was said kind of poorly, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it, it, was, so. it was said authentically, which I do appreciate it. And I said, I think we've both helped each other through a lot of challenges in our careers, and it's been a great relationship. And I think we're both trying to sort of sort out how we how we get from here to there and do it in a safe, sane way. So I appreciate that. Um, all good. No. So, you know, my, my journey, like as a, as an Indian kid, um, you know, it's kind of, it's interesting back in the late sixties and seventies, there was a large wave of immigration um, of Indian physicians and engineers who came to the States and the way the system, you know, kind of works in India, or at least back then is that when you do well in school, the top, you know, what percentage of X percent of the class gets to pick like medicine or engineering. And then the next percent gets to pick like law. And then there's business and this hierarchy of stuff that goes along with it. And so a lot of the immigrants that came over the States in the late sixties and seventies were doctors and engineers. And so I'm the kid of two doctors and it's not that my parents pushed me into doing medicine. In fact, I'm pretty fortunate that they had, I mean, they actually didn't do that at all, but there was, just no role models outside of medicine that looked like me. So all the cousins and relatives and folks like that, similarly who emigrated to the U.S., are doctors and engineers. And if you meet other Indian kids, their parents, you know, similarly. So if I had wanted to do something like I want to do urban planning and architecture, something my daughter's interested in, there would be nobody that I knew in my family that I could talk to about that. So there's always this pressure to kind of go into medicine, but I was rebelling against that because I was not going to be the typical Indian kid. And, um, and so basically in undergrad, I um, was interested in science and I was doing molecular biology um, and, um, 
partly because I thought it was interesting. I think my dad kind of surreptitiously influenced me to take organic chemistry because uh, to quote him, it would leave my options open. Um, <laughs> I don't know how that actually fits in, but he, he sort of did tell me to do that. And I, I like doing molecular biology and I was working in a lab, but what ended up happening is I, I realized like there was not enough interaction with other people, just pipetting. And so instead of applying to PhD programs for grad school, I switched it to MD PhD. And then by the time I was done with my senior thesis, I basically said, I can't do this. And so I was accepted to MD PhD programs and kind of like a moron, I said, I'm not going to do the PhD, I'll just do the medicine. And then I gave up like the scholarship money for that because I didn't think it'd be fair for me to go into it and take the scholarship money and not end up doing the PhD. So that's kind of how I got into medicine. But it was like this whole thing, I wanted to interact more with people. And I thought that was important. Um, and because this podcast has a finite length, I'm not going to go through the full journey, but I'll suffice to say that um, even through med school, um, the thing I'm most proud of is, I, is that I won the Humanism Award in my uh, med school class. Um, I, I just thought that there was always something to that interaction between patients that um, I was a sensitive kid. And when I went to India and I saw, you know, kids on the street begging for money, like I would be bawling inconsolably because I felt so bad for them. Um, and those are things not that it's easy to teach. I think you just feel that way. You empathize with your patients, you empathize with their families. Um, and some for better or worse, I've always kind of had that growing up. And that's what really attracted me to medicine. But that's kind of what I want to talk about a little bit on this podcast is that these are skills that I don't think you can train for, but you can train people to think about them and then reach out to that inner part of common humanness that so often in medicine we suppress. Right. Yeah. So, so talk to me a little bit about that. So talk to me about common humanness and how medicine actually, I would say, almost trains it out of us. And so how do we, how do we break that cycle? You know, it's so focused on memorization and skills and, and it's hard to be in a position of giving somebody advice and telling them what your opinion is, um, but yet being on the same level as the patient. Because by definition, if you're on the same level as the patient and the family, you know, as you like to talk about being vulnerable more frequently, but that that's what it is. And we've so often supposed to be, I'm the doctor, I kind of know what's going on and I'm going to teach you. And that doesn't allow us to necessarily or encourage us to necessarily uh, commune with the patient in a sense. But I almost feel that if you do, you sort of understand, you like unlock this power of communication and they listen to you so much more effectively if you sort of say, I don't know the answer to that question. And just like you, you know, medicine is not, sometimes it's just common sense. And just like you might think that if you've had seven stent procedures and you didn't feel better after any of them, in your own mind, you're probably thinking, well, should I have an eighth? Why should I have an eighth? It's not going to make me feel any better. You're, you say, yeah, that's common sense. That's not medicine. That's just basic common sense. And so therefore you connect with them more. And then all of a sudden people are more apt to listen to your advice. So I think that we just have to actively teach our trainees how to do that. And some of that's through modeling. Um, and some of that's through seeing us in clinics. Some of it's through seeing us with patients. I think Paul Tierstein at, your, at the course, the complications course, um, talked about how he always brings a fellow into the room when delivering bad news. And it's so that they can observe and understand that moment, how powerful that moment can be and how to manage it effectively. So I think we have to be better at that. Right, so, so let me take the counter argument to, to, to that discussion. So getting down to the patient level, empathizing with them, but you do high-risk stuff. So 
how do you emotionally square that when you do have to go tell the families bad stuff? Because there's a there's a there's an emotional price, a personal price in that as well, though, right? So how do you how would you square that? I, I'm looking actually for myself because I tend to I care a lot about patients, but I don't want to be friends with patients yeah. because of that. I've had that issue come up a couple of times and it was mentally and emo- it was emotionally devastating. It hurts. So too how much. would you handle that? Well, I think a few things. First is that it's, that's why it's so important to get the indications for the procedure right. Because if you go in and you feel like this is the right thing to do, that, that, that additional risk we're incurring because it's high risk is worth incurring because the patient is that unwell. That allows us to sort of go into it. And again, the other thing is you don't want to be empathetic and feeling for the patient's emotions as a complication is occurring because you'll be completely frozen and paralyzed. So you have to, in that setting, you have to just sort of say, look, I'm trained to do this. I'm going to use all my skills to do this and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. But that I think almost paradoxically, if the outcome is bad, it's still devastating, but at least you went into it and you knew why you were going into it and you feel like we did it for a rational reason. And there was something wrong that I couldn't fix and I feel terrible about that, but it's even more devastating if the indication wasn't sound. And then you, you, you just, it's really hard to, to deal with that situation. So I think from, from my perspective, I somehow am good at dissociating those feelings that I have in the office or in those individual conversations with the technical component of how I'm actually doing what I'm doing. And I compartmentalize them, but then I come back out of it um, for better or for worse. Yeah, so to follow up on that, I got asked a question last week and this kind of is leading into it. So, you know, obviously getting into med schools become incredibly competitive. Med schools become incredibly competitive to try and get the the, the best residency or whatever and then same thing competitive for the best fellowship so there's there's a bunch of competition do you think though that that competition drives some of the empathy out rather than help create it i think so especially if you're selecting for the wrong things um you know if you're selecting for somebody that did you know basic science work and somehow got their name on a bunch of papers and then come in and uh and then succeeds at the next level and the next level with research etc you're not necessarily um selecting for people that are going to be the most empathetic or the best doctors um i i always joke that with that organic chemistry thing like i mean what did organic chemistry ever teach me about what i needed to do in medicine i would much rather have had somebody you know sit down and do you know how does this person communicate with other people and that's going to be much more relevant to the vast majority of people in practice's career rather than a research year or something like that. So I think we kind of get that wrong. Um, but I do think that, especially as we get into higher levels of training, we can seek that out. And um, I mean, maybe I shouldn't divulge the secret, but for years when we were the, when Sushil Kadali and I were the fellowship director at, at Columbia, we would interview everybody and then we would call their cath lab, cold call their cath lab, ask to speak to the charge nurse and say, you know, what do you think of this fellow? And, um, you know, they would be like, who are you? And then we'd sort of say who we are, but we would say to them, what we want to know is not who they are when they say, you know, oh, Dr. Moses, you're the greatest and this, that, and the other. We want to know, like, what are they like to be side by side with um, in the cath lab? And 
that was something that we did deliberately because of experiences that that I've had in my life where I had a co-fellow, for instance, who literally knew everybody in the hospital. People would bring him free food all the time. And I was like, how is this possible? How? And he just would take the time to introduce himself to people, make friends with them, and ultimately, you know, be reliable to them. And frankly, I think, honestly, I'm sure he gets a ton of referrals as a physician because of these skills, which are soft skills, unspoken skills that people don't usually teach. Yeah. How do you, how do you teach your fellows soft skills? And I'll, I'll, I'll slash that with, how do you teach yourself those soft skills? Well, I mean, I taught myself after observing other people. Um, I think that I definitely, if you ask my family members, I've always been the type of person who's, you know, super focused and like to the point of like intensity, if I'm working on something and someone says something to me on the side, like I, I can't, I'm not even hearing them. I'm not uh, distractible in that way. And um, that is a challenge for somebody who wants to have these soft skills, because if I'm walking through the cath lab answering a text message and somebody walks past me and says, hi, and I keep walking and I don't hear them because I'm focused on my phone, I don't mean badly, but to them, they're like, who the hell is this guy? So what I needed to do is recognize that about myself. I needed to recognize that um, my co-fellow, for instance, this guy, Pedro Martinez Clark is basically getting free food. And, and, you know, my wife needed an eye appointment. And I was talking about the, how am I going to get into the ophthalmologist? And he's like, I'll call Cindy in the office and I'll get her in. And I was like, wait a minute, this, this guy, this it's not just, he's having a good time. He there's actually utility he's getting out of this and he's enjoying life more. So then modeling on that behavior, I sort of tried to make deliberate efforts to, to teach and be present to teach myself how to be more present. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. That's, that's the, the critical word in this is how to be present. And and maybe I'll use that as into the next sort of unspoken skill, the phone huh. and social media and all of the, dis, you know, in theory, I, I'm not sure they're distractions. I'm not sure they're educational. But as you think about how you you got into social media, then you disappeared from social media, so let's talk about lessons you've learned be, to become more present by changing your interaction with social media. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's like anything in life. Nothing is either all bad or all good. And um, the whole reason that I thought it might be a good idea to you know, get into social media was that you can't argue with how quickly information can be disseminated and how broadly it can be disseminated. Um, There are critical skills that I first heard about through social media. One example would be distal radial access. I think if I had seen it at a conference, it would have been two or three years later and it would have been this niche thing and I wouldn't necessarily have known what it was. But remember, it's very broad, but it's super shallow. And so for me, before I started doing distal radial access, I talk to people. I, I read the anatomy books. I looked at you know what the complications could be. So I went deep after having seen that exposure, and I thought it was a wonderful thing. Um, the problem with social media, though, is that it can be all-consuming because it's built on the principle of FOMO, or fear of missing out. And you're fed a ton of stuff, some of which are kernels of gold and, and nuggets, and a lot of which is just a ton of crap. And you don't know what's what. And the only way that you can figure it out is to look at everything 
And ultimately, that just saps your time and energy away from other things that you could be doing. Now, I even knew this going in, but for me, I thought that it would be a fundamentally important role for someone like myself to engage so as to give access educationally to people that wouldn't have access to me otherwise in terms of the way I thought through problems, clinical medicine, et cetera. And I can tell you, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but like people have definitely given me feedback saying we really value the way you think through these things. Um, But at the end of the day, uh, there's only so much time in the day. And if the more you're on your phone, the less you are present to the actual physical world around you. And unfortunately, I think it's more important for me to be present to those around me physically than it is to be out there in the world answering at all times to everything. Um, So combine that with the fact that obviously, as we know, there's a ton of negatives to social media as well. I just thought it was diminishing returns after a while. Actually, when I stopped, I became far better at the jobs that I was shirking or sort of skirting around at home um, and at work, at my physical place of work, than I ever had been or there ever than I ever realized. I was going to say, uh, I'll take two things in that. One is the how much for you did social media make you feel good and you're learning versus make you angry and upset with the profession? Probably yeah, uh, both, probably both. Um, you know, I think that the, I, I just, I always did feel though that the higher, there is a hierarchy, hierarchy of knowledge in a sense, and there's some knowledge that's better than others. And whether we like it or not, we can argue that there's politics to what paper gets in what journal and all that other stuff. But by and large, when you read top tier journals, there's a difference between the science that comes out there and the, the stuff in not top tier journals. This is obviously averages. There's there's ranges of distributions and all that. But the problem with social media is that you're seeing it all equally. So you're seeing, like use COVID as an example, preprints that are so terrible and confounded and et cetera, et cetera, but they're blasted to you with the same intensity as some really high quality article. And I think, you know, that so there's good that you see the high quality, but there's also all the other stuff. And and it just becomes exhausting to try to have to weed through all that and figure it out. And the more of the less lower quality stuff you see being amplified and promulgated, then the more tired you get with the profession and get more and more annoyed at it. But that's not a fair representation of the profession because I've always said that people who are really prolific on social media are either are shirking their other jobs, kind of like I was, or they're not busy clinically because no busy clinician has the time to be doing this. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I'm reading a book called peak right now, um, which is about, I don't know if you've read it, but no, no, it's about how to become, it's about how expertise develops. It's by a guy who's a psychologist who's basically does a bunch of research on how people become experts. Actually, it's interesting. Malcolm Gladwell got the 10,000 hour right. from this guy. Oh, wow. And he's angry yeah. about it because it's a misrepresentation. <laughs> right. Um, right. And, it, and it's because the 10,000 hour rule works because it's actually 10,000 hours of purposeful practice right. or right. discipline practice, what he talks about, not just. Go do something 10,000 hours. Correct. And and in it, and the, the social media thing it gets to is so they bring up Top Gun in the book, right? And what social media is, is it's basically everybody who flies a plane, everybody in medicine, sort of here's what I do. Right. Right. But there's not a this is a defined expert. This is listen, we're we want to share best 
practices. Or, hey, let me ask you this question. Like, if you need to, if you need to get on social media for a consult how to do something, that's probably not the best way to do it. And so I think to me, that's the, I, I can appreciate people want to do it. I know it has value, but for everybody out there, Ajay said two things really important. One, it takes you away from being present in the things that actually matter. And two, there is no competency standard for the people that are showing all this stuff other than they know how to do social media. So no, I, be careful I, who coaches you. Yeah, that's important. And I think the other part is that it's a very numerator driven medium right. and you only see the best case or the worst case, but you don't see that denominator of um, all the other cases that people do. And by the way, the same thing happens at meetings. If you go to a meeting and see like a best case session or something like that, well, you might come out of that session. I mean, frankly, you thinking that every single tough case you do needs a hemodynamic support device. Right. But then if you ask the person of the last three months of cases that you did, how many of them use the hemodynamic support device, then you get the actual denominator and you understand where that is. And I think that's one of the hardest things for trainees to get a handle of because sometimes they feel that that um, in order to feel like they're doing a complex case, let's not pick on hemodynamic support, I need to be doing rotoblader. Right. But they don't realize that actually by doing rotoblader, they just made the case more complicated than it might otherwise have to be. Obviously, rotoblader is a super important skill to learn, but the tools need to be applied in the right way with a clear understanding of numerators and denominators, benefits and risks to then know when it makes sense to use. Right. I think that's the, a little bit of where I was going with this. And since you went there, I'm going to keep going, which is Top Gun, right? Everybody sort of knows about it, but the book talks about this. So Top Gun started because the Navy and the Air Force in Vietnam were basically down to one to one. For every one we shot down, they shot down one of ours. So the Navy decided to start fighter weapons school or Top Gun. And what they did is they took the best fighter pilots out of Vietnam, the guys that had the most kills, the most, you know, they'd been around the longest, most missions. And they took them and they put them in Miramar and said, okay, how, what are you doing? How do you do it? And then they brought in people to teach them. And, and what they learned was, what they did is they taught people to be uncomfortable. So we're going to push you to fly the airplane differently than you've ever flown it. We're going to push you out of your comfort zones as safely as we can. Two, we're going to give you feedback about that on every mission. So you keep learning the lessons, understanding where we're coming from, where your thought process may have been good, where your thought process may have been changeable. And then the other is usually the first couple of days of the Top Gun is they kick the shit out of these guys because they want to humble them because it's about, you got to take these cocky, arrogant, smart right. people uh, that doesn't resonate with anybody here. <laughs> and you have to humble them and say, Hey, I don't care if you've written 400 papers. I don't care if you're on the podium. I don't care if you think you're like, you got to step back and go, I got to learn. And that's really where Top Gun came out of. And, and interestingly, they did their own science project in Vietnam. So at the end of the war, as they did this experts, training experts, going back, teaching, right? This very aggressive cycle, which you think would, what medicine should be, but it's not. At the end, the Navy had a 12 to one kill ratio. Do you know what the Air Forces was? One to one. Well, I stayed one to one. No, no change. And so that's what they started red flag. They started yeah. their, their own version of it. But 
the, the piece for everybody out there is, and all, I'm using this as a little bit of a leverage is, I don't care if you're Ajay Kurtney, you're Bill Lombardi, or you're somebody we've never heard of, you need a coach. And the reason you need a coach is your coach is going to make you do things that make you uncomfortable and doing things that make you uncomfortable will make you better. And if there's anybody who's going to take anything from this, I wish all the fellowship directors and all the cap up directors would stop pretending they're top gun pilots and actually go become top gun pilots. Cause I think that's a big gap in our training. Yeah. So, look, and I, 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 built, I I'm no, sorry. no, 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 that's good. And, and to be honest with you, it's a good segue because two things I wanted to talk about were, um, you know, so this business of how do you get better and, and how did I get better at certain things? Yeah. Um, but also what do we do at training and, and how do we instill this in our trainees? Because a lot of people give up the, give the common argument that our trainees these days, I've heard so many, you know, pejoratives mm-hmm. use, they're soft, they can't handle it. They, they're going to write me up, they're, all this other stuff. So let me address that second. But first, we'll talk about skill, skill and how do you learn it? So, so one skill I think that people have told me that that I'm effective at doing is communicating, speaking, or that kind of thing. And so one of the ways that I got better at doing it was accepting the fact that, okay, I'm, I'm probably okay. I'm probably okay when I started off. But how do I get better? Well, I'm going to watch the best people in various ways, how what they do. And I'm going to look at what they did, see if it was effective, and I'll try to incorporate it. And sometimes someone will do something that's so outrageous that like, I'm like, I I can't pull that off even if I wanted to. So I'm not going to do that. That was really effective, but that's just dependent upon David Holmes's personality when he's lecturing in one way. Um, You know, I'll use that as an example. But there are other people that I sort of said, hey, actually, I kind of like the way that works. And you almost have to take notes on it. And then you try it out yourself. And sometimes you'll bomb and other times you'll get better. But every time someone said, do you want to do a media training or something like that? I said, yeah, absolutely. And you also want to learn skills outside of medicine. So my wife, for instance, has always been a phenomenal public speaker. And there are certain attributes of what she does that may not be applicable to medicine, but there are many that could be. And so you learn from everybody. And if you're watching a moderator on, you know, the, the the news or whatever, certain things that they do well, if you start doing it deliberately and breaking it down deliberately, you can start incorporating those skills. And so that's one way that I've been able to do that. Um, with respect to the trainees and dealing with, you know, these pejoratives, this is where the empathy part comes in as well. Um, you know, I when I trained, I was definitely subjected to a bunch of belittling and craziness. And I remember Dwayne Pinto was like our program director. And at one point I was like, Dwayne, why are you such a jerk? Like, what is what is up with this? Like, he's like, well, people have to get better with the carrot or the stick. And I was like, yeah, you've been you're like a whole lot of stick. Like, where's the carrot? Where's the carrot? (laughs) And he's like, well, you know, I need to push you to get better. Um, And the truth is, is he actually was right, because for some of the stuff we do, routine angioplasty, straightforward it's going fine people can listen to music and there's no issue but then when the crap hits the fan there are people that freeze and then there are other people who just hunker down and can work and you don't want to be someone who freezes and i do think that some of that not Dwayne wasn't a belittler but some of the like being a jerk part was adaptive because it increased my stress level and it helped me function efficiently at a high level of stress so I'm not saying we should haze people. We shouldn't. But what we can do is understand things from their perspective and understand the reason that 
you know, a lot of the the folks that are sort of in residency and beyond, they have a different outlook in life than we did. I mean, they lived in nine, they grew up after 9-11. They see the environment going to crap. They see the political system going to crap. And it's a lot less enticing a future than the one that I had growing up was. And so if I try to see it from their perspective, and I try to see that maybe the way they learn is a little bit different. What I can do and what I have done in, in cases is when somebody starts getting good, I'll tell them, listen, I just want you to know that for the next part of the case, the rest of the case, I'm going to ride you and I'm going to deliberately increase your stress level so that you understand how it is to perform under stress. Because when the crap hits the fan, that's what you need to be able to do. And that disclaimer up front allows me to actually start really pushing their buttons in various ways, throwing in extraneous comments, doing a bunch of different stuff to raise their stress level. But I will never get written up for something like that, I don't think, because I tell them why I'm doing it that way. And I think that for me, that just took seeing it from their perspective a little bit to understand rather than complaining and saying, these guys can't take anything and, and, you know, I'm just going to get written up, et cetera, et cetera. Well, let me let me even take that a step further for everybody's out there, because this has come up in a couple of different things. I think actually, as a teacher, what we don't do is adapt ourselves to the student, right? Because like, hundred percent. I didn't grow up with two Indian physician parents who were immigrants and and did that, so I'm not going to understand what it's like to grow up in your world. You know, I didn't grow. I, this came up with somebody who came over from Nigeria. Like, I don't know what it's like to be a person of color and I'm never going to understand that. And I don't know what it's like to be a woman in medicine and I'm not going to understand that. What I need to understand is, okay, you grew up differently. You learn differently. I have to figure out how do I adapt what I do to empathize and be compassionate with you, but still be able to hold you accountable to help you be successful. But I'm going to have to adapt sometimes how, and this comes up all the time, right? Different fellows, some need more carrots. Some need more stick. Some need a balance. Sometimes you got to think totally out of the box. I think that's, as you talk about empathy with the trainees, a lot of the old physicians, the problem for them is they grew up in an environment where they, they very hierarchically, this is how we do it. End of discussion. And we've got to get to a place where there's a lot of variety of doing it. So I guess to ask, what are your thoughts about adaptability of the instructors and how do we help build that that culture that says, hey, listen, we need to change for the people learning to help them just sort of like what you're talking. Well, I mean, it's it's super important. And frankly, that was one of the reasons why I got on social media in the first place was that I felt that, you know, if people are learning that way and I want to convey a message, then maybe I ought to communicate in that language, in that language that they could understand. Um, Ultimately, there were too many negatives, so I got off of it. But that's a key principle. If you're not, if the student is not receptive to the way you're teaching, then the first thing you need to do as a teacher is to try to figure out how can I be more effective as a teacher to that student? Because you can teach the way you think you want to teach, but if they're not learning, they're not learning, and that's on you as the teacher. And, um, you know, in a fellowship program or in any type of environment like that, the onus is on us to reach out to people in ways that they will be able to understand. Um, the, the other example of this that, 
that was about a year ago, I think there was this whole hullabaloo about this uh, NYU organic chemistry professor, back to organic chemistry, and how he was basically, um, you know, not renewed at NYU because he was too tough a teacher. And there, all the commentary from so many docs was like, this is ridiculous. This generation of kids is soft. And how could this happen? And all this other stuff. And actually, it turns out I know some people who were in the med school uh, or in the undergrad there and took the class. And first of all, they didn't like lobby, I don't think, to, to get him fired. They just sort of wanted more equitable standards of grading, more advanced notice, et cetera, et cetera. But there were people who flat out, not one person, but multiple people getting straight up zeros on exams. And I'm sorry, but if you're a teacher and your student is getting, multiple students are getting a zero, that's on you. you. Exactly. (laughs) It's not on them. I mean, come on. Now that having been, you brought up the Indian parent thing and I didn't want, it reminds me of a joke. Um, You know, don't give me me trouble. I was trying to, no, I won't. I can say it. I can say it myself, but what, do you know what, what the, the B plus is, is called in an Indian household? I'm afraid. Is the Indian F. (laughs) (laughs) So, so we have high, so we have high standards, and uh, people are used to pressure. But um, but no, you got it. You got to reach some level of your students, and um, and figure out a way to be a more effective communicator. Uh, so I have. So you said something about your learning to be a better communicator, sort of observing other people, taking notes, self coaching effectively, but also a little bit outside coaching. But you also talked about well, I'm going to go and flub that up. The problem for us, we do a procedural specialty where flubbing up means bad outcomes. Right. How do we build an environment that lets the fellows flub up? Well, I think first you have to have expertise at the attending level um, because there are certain, you know, screw ups that are or, you know, errors of, of judgment or whatever that you can sort of, you know, rescue where some people can rescue and there are other ones that not everybody can rescue. And um, it often takes somebody with a high level of expertise to allow someone else to do something to then be able to rescue that situation. There are other ways where you can sort of see, if you're a good interventionalist, you can kind of see the the train wreck happening in real time. You know where this is going to go. And what you can sometimes do is you can allow it to go a certain level and then you can say, stop. And then you can say, why did I just say to stop there? I want you to think about it a little bit. And then they may come up with some responses. And then you can then teach and say, well, no, the reason why is because this is what was going to happen if you kept doing that. So that's kind of like a simulation-based approach, but that's how you do it. Um, and ultimately, though, you have to be also at all times respectful and empathetic to the patient and their family. And if it's something that is going to put them in harm's way that you could have obviated, that's that's generally not going to be acceptable. Um, so I think as long as you hold it to that standard, that's fine. It's different when you're doing it yourself and you're trying to troubleshoot a tough high-end problem and you're making a deliberate choice to increase the risk of the procedure at a certain phase. But that's because you're the expert in the case. But when a fellow is doing that, that's a, that's a dicey situation because if you were the patient, I'm not certain you would be fully comfortable with you know, that allowing that to occur when it could increase the risk of the procedure further. And, and I'll end as we move on to the next thing I want to talk about here, but I'll end with, that's actually true for the attending too. Yep. The attending needs to, if the risk is getting to their discomfort level, 
that's the case they need to go get coaching on. And I think that's the one thing where there's no incentive for us to do that. But I would certainly tell people is if you're getting to a place where you're uncomfortable or you're turning the case down or stopping because it's too, too risky, too hard, too whatever, that's actually the things we need to help learn purposeful practice on just to put out there. Um, and Bill, just one quick thing yeah. to add to that. Um, back to your Top Gun analogy, though. I mean, you can lose your edge too. Oh yeah. And and I think that it's go listen, always go listen, to, go listen to Aaron's podcast. The first yeah. one. Oh my god. I mean, that's the thing is that is that you know it's always you can really justify to yourself the conservative approach for many patients it, because you don't want to you know incur any harm, and sometimes that's absolutely the right decision. But if you're on, if you've lost your edge, you may sometimes find yourself making that decision so much that you're actually depriving patients who could benefit from that care. And so you have to be cognizant of that. The only way to be cognizant is to not only be self-reflective, but to talk to one of your colleagues and somebody around saying, you tell me if I'm losing my edge. Like you, you tell me if, you know, what I'm saying doesn't seem to be making sense because I've been through X that's making me behave this way. And that's why I want to come work with you at Columbia. I want to see how your edge is doing. <laughs> my edge is with a lot of administrative responsibilities. The, the edge is tough, but <laughs> well, anyway. Let, let's 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 take on that because you brought up four thousand weeks. I believe yeah. that's the title of the book. Yeah, and there's another unspoken skill, right? Which is how do you manage too many things and not enough time? Yeah, I mean this this book is it's been great to read because it's it's always good to read a book that has a new idea that you then start thinking about and exploring. But in some ways, it's almost better to have come upon several of these realizations and not know how to crystallize it in your own mind. And then you read a book that puts it all together in a framework and you're like, this is exactly what I've been thinking about. And for me, that's what reading this book um, uh, by Oliver Berkman has uh, has been like. And I'm still, I'm not all the way through it, but the basic premise of the book is that, you know, we only have in our lives 4,000 weeks. Um, and Obviously, many of those are spent as a kid and many may be spent later in your life and you're infirm. And so productive weeks is less than that. And so many time management methods and everything focus on trying to do as much as you can with the time you have. But the reality is, is that you actually can't do all of that. And you really have to deliberately, and I mean deliberately, I say it deliberately and I mean it deliberately, um, pick and choose those things that are most of worth to you. and be intentional in it because otherwise you're just going to fill your day spinning your wheels with easier to accomplish mundane tasks that are not necessarily in your overall best interest. And so um, it's really a matter of becoming very good at knowing what to procrastinate, knowing good, being good at what will resolve itself without your involvement and focusing with dedicated time on the things that are really important to you. Um, and it's not to be selfish because you do have responsibilities to your family, to your work, et cetera. But among those things, recognizing the fact that you cannot do everything and therefore be really deliberate in your choices. Talk to me. So to, to do that, obviously, it's about making values. But the other thing I think that's hard for all of us is how do you say no? Right? Because yeah, you don't have I, you to know, say no, right? And no to yourself, no to others. Well, in this is has come up at our Sierra Fellows course many times. And I will always start by saying that I have been extraordinarily privileged 
relative to so many people that are out there just based on the schools I trained at, the schools I went to, the places I trained. Um, you know, I, I can say no because I don't really have, I've not had significant consequences from that saying no. And there are many people, for instance, whose visas may depend upon it. I know Cal talked about what happened to him in training, um, et cetera. Uh, and I, I think that it's it's much more challenging for others to say no than it's always than it's been for me. But I've actually felt that saying no was some of the it was actually often really empowering and people respected me more for having said no than otherwise. And so just a quick story about that. Um, sure. You know, uh, it was probably, I don't know, 10 years ago or eight years ago where, um, you know, I'd been at Columbia for a little while and um, Marty and Greg wanted to go out to dinner with me. And they said, we want to talk to you about something important. We'll go out to dinner together. I said, okay, that's fine. Um, you know, generally, Steve, even though I've been privileged, it was a little intimidating to go out to dinner with Marty and Greg by myself. Um, and I had an inkling of what was going to happen, but I had no idea. And they basically said, listen, you know, we, we really like you. We, we want you to, you know, be a you know, ultimately running TCT. And I think, you know, we can really accelerate your growth in that way. And that's something that we think you'd be great at doing. I paused for a second and then I said, I can't do it. And I said, and they're like, and, and I think Greg, I saw him, you know, six months ago and he brought this story up on his own. I had like kind of forgotten about it. And he he called it like that, you know, that, that memorable dinner. And I was like, what well, was memorable? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the reason I did is because at the time my kids were both in elementary slash junior, junior high school. And I saw what the TCT planning took out of them every summer. And I just couldn't do it with my kids at that age. So what I, I didn't just say no, and then that was it. I said, here's the deal. You know, my kids are this age. I got to be around for them. And, you know, I'll work very hard, but I think that's too much responsibility that I'm not going to be able to, I, I, I can't do this right now. And if you'll still have me when they're gone, then I can take on more responsibility. Um, somehow I was able to phrase it in a way that spoke to how much, um, you know, how flattered, honored, humbled, all those things I was by them saying it, but at the same time, sincere enough that they could see where my value system was. And somehow I think they respected me more for that after the fact. I'm certain they were disappointed, um, but at the same time, they could recognize where I was coming from. But again, I, it's I'm in an extraordinary privileged position to be able to even, number one, get that invite, number two, be asked, and number three, to be able to say no. So I want to follow up on that because, and this is a purely a question to help me. You, you know, you you grew up with your with your parents. You've gone to a lot of elite places. You obviously are working with CRF. Clearly, there are and and above and beyond that, just being who you are, there are tons and tons of expectations of who you are and what you should be. How do you manage that? Ah, yeah, I guess you don't, you, you, you're you always in your back of your mind, they drive you, but um, you also recognize that, you know, anything can be taken away at any moment. Um, any The reason I got to all the places I got, a lot of these things are serendipitous and lucky. And if you ask anybody who has achieved a lot of success in their life, um, even the most egotistical person among people like that will tell you that there were simple acts of luck that led to them being 
in certain places at certain times. Me getting a job at Columbia, I mean, extraordinarily serendipitous circumstances that happen um, and other things like that. And so as long as you recognize that, there, you, then it's not hard to be humble because you recognize there are a lot of other really talented people out there, a lot of other really good people out there who could totally be doing a great job in the same situation. So I think if you sort of view it that way, then you're sort of optimistic every day about, you know, your ability to do something you take, you don't take it for granted. And then you similarly recognize that literally it could vanish in an instant. So you might as well make the most of it. And that gets back to this book in a sense that, you know, if you're going to do something, you got to do it well, because if you start compromising and trying to do too much and you do it, you know, half-assed, it um, is not satisfying and your standard has been lowered and that is what I think ultimately chips away at, at you because nobody wants to do substandard work. Yeah, so how do, you, how do you manage then, as we talk about a soft skill and time management, how do you manage administrative expertise and technical expertise and where those lines cross or how do you make those dovetail in an effective way? Well, I, I, number one is you can't do everything. So... Um, as much as I'd love to think that, you know, I could be expert at Taver and do X, Y, and Z. And at one point I did talk, I mean, Sushil Kadali and I are, you know, we were interns together. We, we were good friends. And, and I thought, man, this is kind of cool stuff. And, and then I realized what amount of time the workup took, the CT, looking at the echo, talking to the patient and their family, who are often themselves geriatrician, geriatric at that time. It's a <laughs> lot of time and effort. And there's no way I'd be able to do what I could do by doing that. Um, yeah, you know, similarly, I, I have to t- be honest, Bill, even on the, in the CTO space of late with his administrative roles going on, I, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, that, that basically Margaret's going to be doing better than me. And I have to be totally comfortable with that in order to not feel like, oh my God, I'm a lesser person because, I, you know, I should be doing it well as well. I can't, right. I simply can't do it. And in that way, it actually allows me to celebrate my team's successes too. Right. So when they do something really well, it's like, oh, that's pretty awesome. That's great. I'm part of that team. And when Sushil does a great valve case or Sahil does a great peripheral case or something like that, we're like, wow, this is a pretty awesome team that I'm part of. And you share in the team's successes that way. So I think that's how I get the time to do the administrative stuff. I, I don't think I'm an expert by any means in the administrative thing. I, I, there are times when effective administrators know when not to respond to stuff. And I often have made the mistake of being too involved because I feel so bad for somebody that you spin your wheels on something for too long. And then that's neglects a bunch of other things. So those are things I'm trying to work on. Um, and it's always a work in progress. You can always get better. And do you do, are you at a place where you're starting to think about legacy? Yeah, uh, yes, I, I think so. I have to be a little bit more deliberate about it. Sorry, my dog. My dog is thinking about my legacy. Can you? Is it? Is it too loud? Or nope, no? Not at be all. Good. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that you first for me, the family legacy is more important than the work legacy. Right. Um, and I've always felt that thanks to advice I got from a variety of senior people along the way where they told me in the time management way, we need to schedule things with your kids with the same priority level or higher priority level, then you schedule other activities that allows you to say no to things as well. And so I was around um, 
not as much as I'd like to be. Nobody will ever say they were around as much as they'd like to be for their family. But I was around enough that I have a great relationship there, and that will be a, a lasting legacy. I think that um, all the people we've trained, the the programs that that we've established, I, you know, I think people have, that have been exposed to me over time understand the way I think through problems. And sometimes they agree, sometimes they don't agree. But I do get the feedback from trainees saying, you know, I, I, I appreciated the way you thought through these types of problems and I learned a lot from them. And so now, especially having administratively taken over, in a sense, the leadership of the group, thanks to Marty and with his judgment, guidance, et cetera, and he'll still be, obviously be around and, and all that. Now I can really think about well, where, where do we want this program to be next? What do we want it to be? And that would be a legacy to form um, at work. And then finally, like, I got to figure out what I'm going to do when I stop working. And so, um, you know, that's why one of the reasons I've been playing a lot more guitar in my spare time with the kids at college, because I'm like, that's got to be something else too. Because if you leave work and there's no more work and you're home and the kids aren't there, like, what the heck are you going to do? So I got to figure out those things too. Well, there's, there's about 10 minutes left. And I always like to leave the last part is, so do you have any burning questions you want to beat me up about and turn the tables a little bit? Not not beat you up about, but I want to I want to ask you. So how's this bill? Whether it's it probably not as two but three or whatever <laughs> going, um, because I, you know I, I, it's so interesting when I, when I first met you. As you know, we were at like CTO Summit. I'm a junior guy. You're a junior guy. I got this CTO database. What do you think we could do some data with it? And then over the years, we've gone for runs, and and I've seen you, you know, at the height of technical prowess. Um, I've seen you at, you know, on podiums and arguing vehemently, not because you want to be a jerk, because you're passionate about patient care. Um, and then I've seen this complete transformation. Not it was actually, I take that's the totally the wrong way. It's not transformation. It's, I think, for a lot of other people, they view it as a transformation, but for you, it was always inside you this caring aspect and trying to figure out how to get things better. Um, but I've seen that, and I want to know, like, how's it going now? And do you feel like, because I, for me, that is almost more remarkable about you than the technical skills is this sort of um, way you've been able to be self-reflective, analytic, and, and all of that. Yeah, I mean, I, it, honestly, it's going really well. I mean, I, I as I talked about, right, the, the person that I was isn't the person that I wanted to be and wasn't going to let me retire wasn't going to let me leave and not, you know, right. You know, you, if you read good to great, right. You have to have a big hairy ass goal. And originally I was just, I wanted to get technically really good at CTOs. And I, I got pretty good at that. And so then it was, well, I want to teach CTOs and we got pretty good at that. And then probably six years ago, what I really wanted to do was change the culture of medicine that I really fundamentally thought that a lot of the, the patient care disparity was a relation to the way we're trained, the way we're incentivized, the way we're paid, the way we're employed, a bunch of things. And that's when I started to get more angry and more rallying and, you know, because it was a bigger goal and it was a, a more challenging goal. And also it was a goal that I did not have skill sets to succeed at. Right. I, I am not the communicator that you are. I am not the politician that you need to be. I 
didn't understand when to, where your values came from, how to hold those values. And I got lost. And so the, the version that I'm working on now, I have a lot more compassion and empathy. I, a lot of that is towards myself and forgiving myself. Um, I really am trying to model a behavior for people that I'd like to see, which is the compassion and empathy, but also accepting failure that we're going to harm people. We're going to make mistakes. But the ultimate mistake is to not actually go out and learn from somebody better than you to avoid that mistake again, or even better, how to manage that mistake in a way that can minimize the harm. And, you know, I've done a lot of reading in a lot of different areas of life. I've done a lot of counseling. I'm still, you know, still doing two. I do two counselings a week right now, one for for me and one for my my wife and I. Um, I've had to really rethink my values and I feel a lot better now that you know, I've really tried to prioritize my wife's career um, and prioritize being there for my kids and spending not just time, but present time. So making sure like, you know, when I take the kids out, I'm really focused on them and we're doing fishing or we're doing a hike or doing something that incentivizes them. And honestly, that means I'm missing a lot more work than I used to miss and I'm okay with that. Um, and then just try to really make sure that I've set myself up to stop striving for some new goal, but really to be this, a person of service that, you know, I'm, I really just want to be a, a mentor and a coach. And I want to do that thoughtfully, which means a lot new soft skills that I never knew. Um, it takes a lot of feedback and a lot of mistakes. Um, but I feel, I mean, I like myself so much better now <laughs> than I used to. I mean, I, I like I said the guy that you know before COVID and the stuff we go around. I was a mess, brother. You you knew that to some degree, but probably not as bad as it was. I don't think I knew it was as bad as it was. I mean, it, it, it and I think that so sort of awakening from that and moving forward. You know, I feel a lot better. I'm a lot more hopeful, um, and I'm a lot happier. And I'm a lot happier with smaller wins, like. I mean, the other night, you know, my younger son, Ryan, as you know, has some challenges and he, he we need to get him some hiking boots and hiking gear because his first week of college, they do a camping thing. Right. And, and apparently he got very frustrated with Erica and like, wasn't going to do it. And I got home and sort of brought up, he's like, got. <laughs> and historically I would have just fought with him. I said, okay, right. you know, Hey, we need to worry about this. Could we maybe do it Monday, which is five days from right. now. And he goes, yeah, that'd be great. I'm like, okay, great. He goes off to this thing. I let it go. Don't fight with it. Do some of my own stuff. And I come back later. I'm like, hey, Ryan, you know, we really need to think about getting a computer. I have some time today. How do you feel about going and looking for a computer? And he goes, well, that I'm okay with. Okay, let's do that. Great. So we go. That's awesome. We get him a computer. And then I said, hey, we're out. REI is right down the road. He's like, yeah, yeah. If it's with you, Dad, I'm good. Let's go. And then That's went awesome. there and we get to the shoes and he gets very overwhelmed with decisions. And I just sit right. there and I say, we look and I find the one that's sort of the most different. I said, what do you think of that? He goes, well, yeah. I like that one. I said, try it. I'm like, do you want to try any of that? No, no, this one's great. I love it. But, but that's something a couple of yeah, years ago, a... I could not have accomplished. And so to me, that's the, if you're going to talk about like highlights in the last month, that screw the meetings that's a highlight. That's 2.0 bill, 3.0 bill. 
that's the version of me I want to become. Um, and I want to do that more with my but, wife. I mean, that's the next big one is really making sure I can communicate and engage her and connect with her in a better way. Cause that's, that's what it's gotta be about. Not about, you know, the other stuff is the other stuff. No, man, that's awesome. First of all, like the, it, those things make it all worthwhile. Second of all, I'll just say, you know, the, one of the beauties of doing those runs with you is I would actually connect more with you doing those things and podium, we, you know, we talk and it's, it's hard, but, but so when you just go out and run with somebody, I mean, that, that the, you're connecting at a human level, you're, yeah. all that other stuff is gone. You're like huffing and puffing anyway. So you can't even th- think about that. But I think everything you're talking about ultimately is subverting the ego and um, right. for for me as an Indian kid, um, part of philosophy and it's it's a sort of called a Vedantic spiritual philosophy is that what your whole your whole thing is you're a vehicle for service to others, and whether there's a positive ac- outcome or a negative outcome, it's not you. It's you're just sort of a vehicle in a sense. And by the way, this is not just in like Hindu spiritual culture. This is true of many other religions. They have that that thing of service. Yeah. And I think if you just feel like what you're doing is service and you don't get too attached to it, the 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 benefits of it or the negatives of it, it allows you to maintain balance and it allows you to look at yourself from the outside and figure out ways to to get better. And I, I think what's also remarkable about your situation, Bill, is that a lot of times people come to this realization when they're sort of 70 or 80 or they're too old to do anything actionable about it. And that's why when I said, how's it going? To my perspective, it's just unbelievable to see how this is going because we don't typically see people with that level of technical skills and all those other skills arguably you know best in the world top class doing this thing as well and so for me whatever version of bill that is it's pretty freaking great so uh, i'm glad you're sharing it with everybody i appreciate that well part of that's the four thousand weeks which is realized, right. yeah i mean it's a true story right my dad died at 63 unexpectedly my mom died at 68 I mean, if I make it to 70, you know, I, I don't have 4,000 weeks. I got 3,000 weeks. Um, and and I want those weeks to count to, to count and to mean more than what they were. And I think if you want to look at version three, that's really is the weeks count more and what I'm doing counts more. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to both of our, our calves and Achilles getting better so we can at least go for a run <laughs> or maybe I'll get you on a bike and we can do a bike ride. Cause that's right. That's I, right. Those, those are the memories that I'll always remember. And those are the, yeah. the moments, like you said, that it's so much better. So I've just, I've appreciated our friendship and all that stuff we've gotten to do. It's been really cool. No, it's been awesome. And, and uh, thanks for, by the way, having me on this thing. It's uh, I hope other people get as much out of it as I did. Um, certainly hanging out on my deck with the, with the weather, talking to you about this stuff is pretty awesome and fulfilling. So thanks, Bill. I appreciate it, Ajay. Everyone, thank you to the Journey to Better. Ajay, you get back to the wife and your guitar. And uh, <laughs> take care, brother. Love you, Take man. care. Journey to Better. See you. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to Journey to Better and good luck.